Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. It's always a blessing to hear you sing Psalm 1. You know, I can't help but think, um, you know, if, if we're not thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ there, we're really missing the boat on Psalm 1. He is that blessed man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And that he is our faithful Adam. He's the true Adam, the better Adam, the last Adam who brings eternal life to his people. Oh, beloved, let us turn now in God's holy word as we go to 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2. We're going to read the entirety of uh, the chapter. We've been anticipating, kind of in the background, if you will, uh, the departure of Elijah and uh, the succession of Elisha as the mantle will now fall to Elisha. And as I read it, I want you to listen for the tension and for the uneasiness in the text of the people of God as they are somewhat perplexed and wondering what now will become of the kingdom of God now that God's prophet is gone. You know, we have quite the allegiance to the servants of God, and rightfully so. I think that's appropriate. But we must never uh, be duped into thinking that uh, the kingdom resides in any one man, no matter how gifted he is. Uh, The kingdom always resides in the hand of the king, and that king being the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's listen now as uh, we listen to 2 Kings chapter 2 in its entirety. This is God's holy word. And when the Lord Yahweh was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord Yahweh has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord Yahweh lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord Yahweh will take away your master from over you? And he, Elisha, said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord Yahweh has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord Yahweh lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord Yahweh will take away your master from over you? And he said, That being Elisha, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord Yahweh has sent me to the Jordan. But he, Elisha, said, As the Lord Yahweh lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty of the men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what shall I do for you before I am taken from you? And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, Chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. 
And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him, that is Elijah, no more. And he, Elisha, took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak or the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord Yahweh, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord Yahweh has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not sin. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Now the men of the city, that is Jericho, said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of the water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. He, that is, Elisha, went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys, or adolescents, came out of the city and jeered him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. He, Elisha, turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord Yahweh. And two she-bears, or two mama-bears, came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, And from there he returned to Samaria. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray and ask this blessing. O living and triune God, we come before you, mindful of your greatness, your holiness, your otherness. You who are high and lifted up, we draw near with broken and contrite hearts. For, Lord, we know, according to your word, that they are the sacrifices that are acceptable in your sight. And we come with those hearts in union with Jesus Christ, the Lord, our righteousness, asking that you would come and feed us and lead us by your spirit, the same spirit that took Elijah up and anointed Elisha is with us now in union with Jesus Christ. So come and teach us, equip us for every good work, bless the words of my mouth and the meditation of of our heart, our Savior and King, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Transition can be very difficult. Change is not something that most of us, most of us being conservative by nature and constitution, politically as well as theologically, don't accept change very easily. As we go from the known to the unknown, there's an atmosphere of uncertainty, uneasiness, attends change, you see, 
The known is secure. The unknown is mysterious. We don't have control, right? We want to have control. We're control freaks in many ways. We want to control the future. We want to control all that's happening around us. But when change is thrust upon us in God's good providence, sometimes unbeknownst to us, we are the recipients of change. It can be unsettling. And that's exactly what's happening here in 2 Kings 2. The kingdom of God is going through a period of transition. Elijah's time of departure has come. He's going to be taken up into the whirlwind, into heaven. He's going to enter his heavenly rest. Elijah and Elisha have been preparing for this day since Elisha's anointing there in 1 Kings 19. The mantle is now being passed from one prophet to another. And as you read the chapter, you get the sense there's an uneasiness about what's preparing to happen. Ironically, everyone seems to know what's coming, Elijah, Elisha, and the sons of the prophet, but nobody wants to talk about it. We see Elisha saying, I know, I know he's going to be taken. Be quiet. I know it. You see, everyone's on edge, not knowing what to expect. You see, to have Elijah, the prophet of God, was the sign that the covenant Lord was in the midst of his people, that God's presence was their great defender and portion in a desperate age. And now all that's about to change. Elijah was departing. So would God's Spirit and Word depart with him? That is the question being addressed here in 2 Kings. They're seeking to answer. What's going to happen to the leaving remnant now that the prophet is gone, departed? The situation here is very similar to what we see in Joshua chapter 1 when Moses departed. Right There's that funeral there in the end of Deuteronomy. What's going to become of the people of God now that Moses The one who is humble, God's friend, is now departed. What will become of the people? What will God do? What will happen to us? You see, that very question now is being asked here in 2 Kings. How will the believing remnant go on now that Elijah has departed? In whose hand does the kingdom truly reside? Does it reside in the hand of the officers? Does it reside in the hands of the congregants? Does it reside in the hands of God's people, or does it reside in the hand of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh himself? And beloved, what we see here is that the kingdom of God's servants come and they go, yet God remains the same. He is the one constant in the kingdom of God. He is the immutable, unchanging God who is always the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow for his people. In verses 1 to 8, we see the farewell tour of Elijah. He's out there strengthening these sons of the prophet. Now, who were they? We don't know. They don't, this is the first time they show up. This is some seminary group of students, part of the remnant that's there, right? And what we see is that Elisha is not willing, though, to leave Elijah's side. Three times, Elijah asked Elisha, please stay. Stay in Gilgal. Stay in Bethel. And now stay in Jericho. And three times, three times, Elisha says, no, I'm not going to leave you. Right? He has like, it's like almost Elisha is, Elijah is like his special blanket. He won't let him go. Right? He, he won't depart. He won't leave his side. Because he knows the weight of responsibility of leadership, perhaps. And maybe he's uneasy. And maybe Elijah is testing the mettle of Elisha. Do you have what it takes to assume the mantle, to to take the cloak, to to lead, to be out front, to be the tip of the spear. 
that God's calling you to be. In verse 8, Elijah and Elisha arrive at the Jordan. Elijah takes the mantle, rolls it up, strikes the water, the water parts. He and Elisha cross over on dry ground. We're told there, incidentally, in verse 7, that 50 of the sons of the prophets of Jericho from a distance are watching the, the parting of the Jordan River as witnesses as the anointing and the power are residing on Elijah. Right now, what's going to become now that he has been taken away? Then we have in verses 9 to 12 the request and Elijah's departure. Elijah asked Elisha in verse 9, What shall I do for you before I'm taken away? Elisha says, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit upon me. Give me the inheritance of the firstborn, not materially, but give me a double inheritance of your spirit. You see, the weight of ministry is before me. I know the awesomeness in the task that God is calling me to as your successor, and I can't do it. I don't even want to attempt to do it apart from the Spirit of God. Well, there's one stipulation. Elijah tells him, you must see me depart. In verse 11, as they talk along the way, I'd love it to have been a fly on that wall to hear the discussion, the conversation. It must have been tremendous conversation partners, Elijah and Elisha, as they talked about the fire that fell on Mount Carmel, God's faithfulness in providing for widows, God's power in resurrecting the dead. And God would give Elisha the courage that he needs. And then behold, we're told, as they talked, chariots of fire separate them, and Elijah is taken up by a whirlwind to heaven. In verse 12, Elisha cries out, My father, my father. Now don't miss that, that little nugget there. It speaks of the endearment and the closeness of the relationship between Elijah and Elisha, between the senior minister and his assistant. There's such closeness, it's familial, it's love, it's, it's closeness as they're forged together in fire ministry. Then we're told that Elisha saw him no more and, and tore his own clothes into two pieces, no doubt because he's, he's mourning, he's grieving, so he rends his garments. You see, they still do that today in the Middle East, right? We don't show despair and grief the way they do in the Middle East, but that would be commonplace. They would rend his garments, and he rends them and tears them in pieces, and he takes up the mantle. Verse 13, Elisha took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen, right? That cloak that had been placed on him in chapter 19, anointing him, calling him to ministry, is now placed into his very hands, and he takes it up. And he gets back to the Jordan River and he takes a moment. He stands on the bank of the Jordan and the tension is building. Now that Yahweh's prophet is departed, what's going to become of the kingdom? Has the power and has the spirit departed with Elijah? That's the question, the text. And here's the linchpin, verse 14. The question comes. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water. There was this pregnant moment saying, where is Yahweh, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. So the question, where is the Lord, the covenant Lord of Elijah? Has he departed with Elijah? Well, the answer is an emphatic no. The covenant Lord is where he's always been. He's with his people. And Elijah's successor, 
Now he's residing and resting on Elisha. What Elijah had done, parting of the Jordan, now Elisha does. In verse 15, we're told there, incidentally, it was witnessed to by the 50 sons of the prophet that were standing there on the western side of the Jordan. They say, the spirit of Elijah now rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Well, there's some lessons here for us as we just kind of sketch that out very quickly. There are three lessons that I want to look at. First, then we're going to look at the, the Jericho, the healing of the water. And we're going to look at the, uh, the man who's follically challenged and the cursing of that man by these young adolescents in God's judgment. But let's look at this first lesson. Servants come and servants go. Yet God's word and God's spirit remain with God's people. We see in verse 14 that Elisha by uh, Yahweh's power can do the very same works that Elijah can do. The same spirit that was resting on Elijah is now resting on Elisha. Now this should humble us, shouldn't it? You know, unfortunately, we sometimes think of ourselves as being indispensable to the kingdom of God. You know, the kingdom of God, all saints is pretty lucky to have me. You know, the PCA, just think what it would be if I were ordained in the PCA. But just then, we're not indispensable. No man is, no woman, no child, no one is. There's only one who's indispensable, and that's Christ. God's power resides in God, not in His servants. You see, saints, our help is in the name of the Lord, not in the personality of His servants. Servants come and people go. God is the only constant. He raises up and He brings low. Blessed be His name. John Calvin says this, The faithfulness of God never falls or fails. When God takes away those adorned with special gifts, He has others in readiness to supply their place. And though He is pleased for a time to give excellent gifts to some, His mighty power is not tied down to them. But He is able, as often as it seems good to Him, to find fit successors. And if necessary, to raise up from the very stones persons qualified to perform illustrious deeds. Don't think that you are indispensable. Only the Son of God is indispensable. Servants come and servants go, yet God remains. He remains with His people and His Word and with His Spirit. Like the sons of the prophets, we need to learn this lesson, right? That God's Spirit and Word are not bound to God's servants. This lesson helps us understand the sons of the prophets' conundrum there in verse 16, right? Now, they haven't seen him taken up in the whirlwind. They saw Elijah and Elisha cross the Jordan to the eastern side. They've seen Elisha return without Elijah, but they didn't see the, the translation, the transportal, if you will, of Elijah going into heaven. So they see Elisha now, the Spirit of God resting on him, but where's Elijah? So they're asking themselves, well, you know, it's been God's practice in the past to take him and place him in various places and 
sundry ways. Perhaps he's on a mountain, right? He, he was a mountain man. Maybe God set him up there on a mountain. Please let us go, they say, and let us seek your master. You see, they're grieving the loss. They're, they're wondering what's going to become of God's people. It's only natural. Elijah's been the one who's fed them the word of God. Elijah's been the one in whom the, the spirit of God has been made manifest. He's, a, he's faithfully exposited the word of God, Lord's day after Lord's day. Right? Feeding them, teaching them, blessing them. But now he's gone. Beloved Elijah knows it's a futile attempt, but they persist. Elisha finally relents, right? After three days of vainly searching, they return, having found nothing. Did I not say not to go? The transition in letting go of an allegiance to God's servants can be hard. I was reading this week, you know that uh, Charles Spurgeon, the famous expositor of God's word, served in the Metropolitan uh, Tabernacle there in London for 38 years. It's a long time. I know Sparky's served at Emmanuel a long time. It's a long time. And you grow close to the people of God in that period of time. There are all types of connections that are made. There are connections being made even right now as I'm bringing the word of God to you, between you and me, between the pastor and the people of God. His successor, his name was Tappan Pearson. He served for only two years. And I thought to myself, that's interesting. That's a faith, that was a faithful church. Now, there was quite the, a controversy there, the downgrade controversy, right? Liberalism of the German school of Tübingen was coming in and affecting various, the theological landscape of the day. But it's interesting, there was only two years before he leaves. And then today, I, I read today that there's a gentleman by the name of Peter Masters. I've heard him preach. Now, get this. He's been at uh, the tabernacle there in London since 1970. And you think to yourself, wow, what, what must be the dynamic, the familial, the, the closeness and the relationships between that man of God and those people there? You see, let's not underestimate what's actually happening in the text of God's Word. There is a relationship that's developed by God in the lives of God's people. You see, letting go of God's servants can and often is hard. Beloved, just like the prophets here in 2 Kings 2, we must always remember that the kingdom of God is always in the hands of Christ the King. And that those servants depart, you can be assured that where God's word is faithfully preached, right? If, if I'm killed this afternoon on the way home, heaven forbid, I'm not ready yet. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And yet, Paul says, even there, it's for your benefit that I remain for there's ministry yet to do. And I still think there are a few sermons yet for me to preach. But if I were taken in God's good providence, you know what's going to happen next Lord's Day at 3000 Grove? You're going to get a man of God who's going to stand behind this pulpit who's going to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified because I know the men that I serve with and I know their commitment to the Word of God. But more importantly than that, I know the God they serve. And I know his commitment that where his word is faithfully expounded, it's faithfully taught and applied to the hearts of God's people, 
God is there. God's Spirit shows up in the preaching of the Word, the means of grace, as it dispenses, as it were, all the benefits that your elder brother Jesus Christ has secured for you in the covenant of grace, as he lavishes on you, as he sings over you, as it were, his beauty, his goodness, and his truth, you see. We can know this, right? This kingdom is not attached to Paul and Ephesus. It wasn't attached to Calvin at Geneva. It wasn't attached to Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel. Whomever. You see, at the end of the day, all servants are, at the end of the day, is you're an earthen vessel. Now, you're an earthen vessel made in the image of God, and you're precious to God because he paid for you with the blood of Jesus. But at the end of the day, the feet behind this pulpit are clay feet. And we're all clay. He's the treasure. He's the pearl of great price. As he goes, and faithfulness in his preaching of his word, so his kingdom will continue to grow. Right? The second lesson. Servants come and servants go, yet God's grace remains with his people. Verses 19 to 22. So here you have Elisha. He's settling into ministry. Right? He's just trying to get his feet under him, right? You make a transition, you come into authority, you come into some position of leadership, you're just trying to feel it out, right? That's what's happening here. So he's going through Jericho, we're told. And we're told there's a, power, there's, a, there's a problem in Jericho regarding the water. And you're thinking, well, that's a strange story, this salt, this bowl, this healing, the water, and so forth. What's going on here? What's going on here, and what's imperative to understand is geography, Do you remember Jericho? Jericho was that first city that fell in Canaan. You can read about it in Joshua chapter 6. After the walls fall, the city is conquered, and the children of Israel go in and take possession of that great land. That's a typological picture of heaven, right? That's what's going on there, right? It's a picture book. The Old Testament is a picture book showing us the, the inheritance that we're going to have. It's bigger than just a little GPS land called Canaan. No, we're going to have the new heavens and new earth. Canaan was just a a type of heaven. Well, they go in and take possession. And we're told in chapter 6 that Joshua pronounces a curse on the city of Jericho. Joshua 6.26. And this is the curse. The man who undertakes building or the rebuilding of Jericho is cursed before the Lord. He will lay its foundations at the cost of his firstborn... And he will set up the gates, its gates, there in Jericho, at the cost of his youngest. And do you remember now, now you have to put your memory hats on. Do you remember when we were in 1 Kings chapter 16, before we began this series looking at Elijah? We tried to paint the portrait of what things were like there in the northern kingdom in the 8th century B.C., how dark it was. Do you remember that man in chapter 16, verse 34? His name was Hela Bethel, who had no regard for the word of God. He decided to test the Lord. He decided to test the veracity of Joshua 6.26. Yeah, I know. I know the living God has said, cursed be Jericho. But you know what he tried to do? He tried to set up its walls and to establish its gates. 
And we're told, he laid its foundation at the cost of his firstborn, Abiram, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord that Yahweh had spoken through Joshua. You see, now here in 2 Kings 2, we see that that city, that cursed city, has now been rebuilt. And the water is bad. And the land is unfruitful. Literally in the Hebrew, the land miscarries. Right? Some of our ladies, unfortunately and sadly and agree with them, know exactly what that is. They have a miscarriage. How graphic that picture is, right? Life is not sustainable in Jericho. It's a pleasant place to live, but nothing can live there because the water is contaminated. That makes sense because it's a cursed city. So Elisha asked for a new bowl and some salt, and he he cast it into the water. And one of the things we need to be aware of when we do and read texts like this is not get too caught up in the process, right? Not get caught up in the, in the props, that being the bowl and the salt, but rather the significance of the word of God. Notice what is told us in verses 21 to 22. Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. Death and miscarriage shall be no more. So the water was healed according to the word that Elisha had spoke. You see, it's clear that God and his word healed the waters of Jericho. It's not the servant who heals the waters of Jericho, but the God who owns the waters of Jericho who heals the water. You see, the power resides in the word. And though the rebuilding of Jericho was an affront to God, testing and challenging his holiness, his holiness, costing Helobethel the death of his two sons, the mercy of God prevailed. You see, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. And here what we have is a little portal, a little window into the restoration of the new heavens and new earth that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to usher in on the last day. You see, the waters of this world are polluted. They cannot satisfy. They cannot heal. But one day, the waters will flow from the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and new earth, and the people of God will be with the Son of God forever. And we have a little portrait here. Right? That friends, there is no curse so great, no sinner so foul that the mercy and grace of Jesus cannot cleanse. You see, Jericho is the last place you would expect mercy to be shown. Yet it is here we find the cursed waters becoming clean. You see, friends, there's no place so dark that God cannot cleanse. There's no sinner too sinful that Jesus cannot make new. The invitation comes to you. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Today, maybe some of you, and I know some of you are, you're, you're feeling too dirty. You're feeling unclean. You're feeling like those waters there in Jericho, saying, God can't forgive me. He has no grace for me. Your heart condemns you. But the Word of God comes and He reminds us that God is greater than our hearts. And I also remind you that the devil is a liar. He's lying to you that the mercy of Jesus is deep and the grace of Jesus is wide. And where sin abounded, the grace of God superabounded. The blood of Jesus can wash away any sin. No matter what that sin is, it can wash it away. You're not a lost cause. 
right? Just like that leper in Matthew 8, right? Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. The Lord Jesus, not too busy for a sinner. When everyone else tells the sinner, depart, he's on a mission, he's got to go to Jerusalem and establish his kingdom and throw off the yoke of the Romans. No, he says, hark, I hear a sinner, he's calling my name. And he goes over, I'm willing. I'm able to wash you and cleanse you, to make you clean. He's able to wash and cleanse you like that woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years, who spent everything she had on physicians. But that day, as Jesus was traveling through, and the crowds were telling her, hey, just be quiet. We've got more important things to do. We've got a church work to do up here in Jerusalem. But she knew if she only reached out in faith and touched the hem of his garment, she'd be made whole. And by faith, she reached out and she touched the hem of his garment. And what happened? Healing came. Cleansing came. Restoration came. She was saved. So, beloved, the same holds true for you. The the same Savior that healed that woman, that healed that leper, that healed that water there in Jericho comes to you and he says, come unto me. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, I shall wash them and make you whiter than snow. O sinner, believe the word of God. Trust not your own heart. Silence the voice of the accuser of the brethren and believe. He's willing and able to cleanse you. And then we come to this third lesson, right? Servants come and servants go, yet God remains with his people in his judgments. Now, verses 23 to 25 is shocking, right? What's going on here? Is he having a bad day, Elisha? Right? Is this just a vindication for bald pastors, right? Is that all that's going on here? Right? Is he irritated? A little snippy? What are we to make of this? Right? Is he overly sensitive? This is seen in similar light to last week's text from chapter 1. This is just a legend. Right? This can't be true. Surely two mama bears don't come out of the woods and maul 42 young adolescents. That's just, that's, King, that's authorian. Right? That's, that's Tolkien. That's not true. That can't happen. Oh, but it did happen in history. Two mama bears, mama covenant bears, come out of the woods and maul 42 unfaithful adolescent young men. It really did happen. What can we learn from this? Again, geography is important to understanding and applying. In verse 23, we're told that Elisha went up from Jericho to Bethel. Now, Bethel, you remember now, Bethel had become the hub, the Mecca of Baal worship. Jeroboam had set up his bull calf worship there in Bethel, right? Bethel in Hebrew means house of God. But it's no longer the house of the living God. It's now the house of idols. It's the house of Jeroboam's false religion. Right? So it's not just any city, but rather for the last 80 years, it's been the center of false worship in the northern kingdom. Knowing this history, is it any wonder that these young men come out and curse and mock God's prophet? And in turn, not just mock God's prophet, 
They're mocking the God who stands behind the prophet, more importantly. That's what's going on here. ESV says small boys. The better understood is is adolescent men. You think of these as 12 to 14-year-old young men, right? These are the wicked men of Proverbs 111, where they say this, Come with us. Let us set an ambush and kill someone. Let us attack some innocent person just for fun. Let us swallow them whole like Sheol. So what you need to think about now is you need to think about the mobs that are currently running rampant throughout the cities of the United States, in Chicago, in New York, in the subway of New York. Little packs of adolescent young men, fatherless, without shepherds, without leaders, like the pack of wild dogs that attacked a meteorologist last week. It says he was beaten up by children. There was about 15 of them who beat him up on the subway, all because this meteorologist saw this young pack of wild dogs, because that's what they were, abusing an elderly man. And the meteorologist, being a man, amidst the boys, says, boys, you guys need to cut that out. Well, they didn't take too kindly to that. They said, oh, you want some of this. So they began to pummel and beat up this man who was hospitalized. And saw a picture of him. He was bloodied and and bruised. That's exactly the picture we have here. Notice there's nothing innocent about them. These young men were intentional. Notice how they go out of the city and jeer and scorn and mock Elisha, right? Elisha's going through the city on his way. And they say, hey, hey you, old Baldy. Now, how'd they know he was bald? I don't know, because he probably had a head covering on, right? Hot sun there in Palestine. But they knew. And no doubt, perhaps, comparing him to his predecessor, Elijah, who was known as a hairy man. And now here comes the bald preacher, right? He doesn't, he's follically challenged. He doesn't have the hair that the first guy had. They start to mock him. Go up, old baldy. Go up, you bald head. And notice there are a lot of them, at least 43 And we're told that 42 of them are attacked by two mama bears. Now, the question we need to ask is, where are the parents? Right? All my teenagers, look at me. Where are the parents? This pack of of adolescent young men, where are the parents? Where's the mom and dad? Where are the dads? Again, this is Bethel, right? This is the heart of Baal worship. Eighty years of idolatry in a city will do this to a city. So the lesson for us is that the judgment of God that falls here should sober us. Just like the judgment that fell with the fire that extinguished 102 lives in the previous chapter, the judgment of God is real. I don't know how you explain the cross of Jesus Christ if you do not understand the holiness and the wrath and the justice of God. For you see, he was mauled. 
the fire fell on him. He was covenantly cursed in your stead. This is what sin deserves, mauling and destruction, because that's what happens here. These bears, you see, as I said before, are covenant bears, because God had forewarned the people of God in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 21, listen to what God had warned the people. If you walk contrary to me, I will not listen. I will strike you sevenfold for your sins. I will let loose wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children. Thus saith the Lord. How much clearer could it be that what's going on here is God's covenant curse falling upon covenant breakers? And all of us, all of us, all of us are covenant breakers. You and I and our children deserve to be mauled. The problem isn't that there are 42 youths who were mauled by the living God. That's not the problem. That's not the intellectual, cognitive problem. Why weren't there 43? Or 44? Or 45? That were mauled. You know why? Because of the mercy of God. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. But he treats Jesus as your sins deserve. You see, so lest we stand in judgment and somehow think, well, I would never mock the pastor. I would never jeer and scorn the prophet of God. Oh, beloved, you would, you have, and you will except for the grace of God. You see the mercy of God here? That God gives Jesus to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That His blood would cover us. That these covenant bears would not fall on us, but they fell on Him. So servants come and servants go, yet God remains the same. The living God is not bound to His servants. Where God's Word is faithfully preached, there Christ is in His power and spirit, and there He will be in His covenant to bless those who believe and to curse those who don't. Let Him and her, boys and girls, elders and deacons, Elderly and young, babies and aged, let them who have ears, let them hear what the Word of God says. Look to Christ. Trust Jesus Christ and Him alone. And know that your salvation is found solely in Him. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank You for Your mercy.
We thank you for Jesus Christ who bore in his own body the cursed for our sins. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the law. And Father, we thank you that you gave Christ to be a curse for us. That in him we might have forgiveness of sins. We might have renewal. We might have adoption. We might have sanctification and justification. We might have all the benefits dispensed to us and received by faith alone in Christ alone. We thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray and we would ask your continued blessing on this word. Minister to us, O living God, as we go out of this place and humble us and teach us to walk in humble obedience and faith and hold fast to our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord our righteousness. We pray in his holy name. Amen. Beloved, let us stand and sing our final hymn this morning, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. It's found in your bulletin.
Amen. Listen now to the words of institution as they're found in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord, I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us confess our faith together now using Heidelberg Catechism, question number 26. Church, I will read the question. Let us answer in unison. Christian, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? Of nothing made heaven and earth all that is in them, who likewise upholds and governs the same by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ, his Son, my God and my Father, in whom I so trust as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and further, that whatever evil he sends upon me in this veil of tears he will turn to my good, for he is able to do it, being Almighty God and willing also, being a faithful Father. Amen.